Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio, 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sens. Here in the studio with me today, I have Mr. Daryl Holiday with Holy Cross Food Science. Should we call you Chef Daryl, Chef Holiday, Daryl? Whatever makes you happy, Chef, Doctor, <laughs> Mister, it's all good to me. So uh, I am so happy that uh, I like Doctor Holiday. Here we go. <laughs> that Doctor Holiday is here in the studio with me. Um, we met uh, like many of my guests. I met him on Facebook, and so I just got to meet him in person today. But uh, I feel like food science is fun. Fun with science, fun with food. Those two things seem to go together. And I wanted to really get you in today, especially with the holidays. I feel like there's so much opportunity to talk food science. Yeah, I mean, food science affects our daily lives, whether we're eating or drinking, buying things from the grocery. So it's all an everyday occurrence. But food really takes the highlight, especially here in South Louisiana during the holidays. So it's it's kind of that natural fit. And so when we say things like food science, what does that what does that really mean? So simply put, food science is the chemistry, the physics, the biology of getting food from the farm to the fork in a safe, healthy, and nutritious manner. So really, I kind of tell people, anytime you see a product in the grocery store, you're welcome. Uh, food science had some aspect with it, whether it was making sure the produce was safe, especially with the recall on romaine right now all the uh, packages, all the canned foods, and then the fun aspects like all the new flavors of candy, soft drinks, potato chips that are coming out. And, you know, it's really neat because I don't think we pay attention much to the science behind it. And so many times now we're talking farm to table and, oh, there's this kind of idea that, oh, someone grows the vegetable and then it ends up on our table. But there are so many people who touch it along the way. And when you talk about that safety, that packaging, that cleaning, that processing, all of those things, you know, food scientists seem to be involved in that whole process. Yeah, restaurants really like took the farm to table concept and kind of ran with it as a marketing image. But all food is technically farm to table. So it just questions how many steps are in between. Right. I, just recently, we had a big conference here in New Orleans for food scientists, and I have some clients who come regularly, and they brought me all these natural gums and thickeners and things to play with. And I just remember going, wow, who knew there were all these things in other countries that grew on trees that people were using to change the texture and the flavor of food, but also to change the fiber content and the the pro- profile of the pro- the final product to fit a certain health standard that they needed. Yeah, I mean, it's here in New Orleans, we really highlight our coffee with chicory, but so many people don't realize that if we take chicory root and we grind it into a fiber and put it into our foods, it's a huge prebiotic fiber and really benefits our gut health. So it's something that we are doing here that's already being used in industry, but we just don't really recognize it as an individual side. Food Network has done a really great job of really showcasing what the elaborate life of chefs could be like, but food manufacturing kind of hidden the fact that food is made by scientists. And so the great thing about where I am with the University of Holy Cross Food Science Program is we're really creating from that we've created from the ground up what food science and what food manufacturing is and the culture of it here in New Orleans. So we're really trying to bring that industry to the forefront. And it really helps highlight a lot of the Louisiana made products that you're seeing. 
And, and you know, it's just for me, I to know that the food is is good, it's nutritious, it's healthy, it's been handled appropriately. There's love through the whole process. And that there are experts who have made sure that the final product that gets to me is is the right one and something that I is okay for me to consume and put in my body. Exactly. Yes. Well, as the holidays are coming, I, I was like, oh, I got to call in Dr. Holiday because canning and preserving and giving holiday gifts are, you know, kind of part of Louisiana tradition. And I feel like we have... Some generations that maybe didn't have an opportunity to learn that from past generations, and they're a little nervous about the first time they're going to can something. And uh, I thought it would be fun to talk about what are the things that we can be putting up for the next season or preparing to create a gift for someone for the holidays or the perfect hostess gift to bring to Thanksgiving dinner (laughs) or Christmas dinner. Sure, yeah. I mean, Louisiana is known for... You feed who you love, and you show your love through your food. And so it's not just the love for each other, but it's also the respect that you're buying these products from a farmer's market, and you want to you know, make sure you honor those in the way that the farmer spent the time growing them. And so one of the easiest ways, like you said, is through pickling. And probably the easiest way is to make sure you blanch your vegetables before you try to pickle them. That will it'll help set the color. Uh, because you're going to deactivate the enzymes that will also cause spoilage and some bacteria. But it also just it will help them pickle faster and better. And then just make sure you're balancing your sugar salt in your warm vinegar. You want to make sure you're using a standard vinegar, not like a rice wine vinegar that traditionally is a little bit lower in vinegar. So if you do use a rice wine vinegar for more of that sweetness, make sure you are balancing it with a traditional vinegar. Um, otherwise, also balsamic vinegar generally not a good choice to go with because it can get kind of syrupy and sweet, but also it'll turn whatever you're pickling, that nice dark brown caramelization color. But for the most part, pickling is actually really easy. You take your blanched produce. you pack. And so explain to our listeners what blanched process is. Sure. So you take the vegetable, cut it into the appropriate size, then you drop it into boiling water for about 30 seconds to a minute, scoop it out and drop it right into an ice water bath, to stop the cooking process. And really what you're doing is you're just deactivating the enzymes there. And that helps to keep those vegetables crisp instead of soggy. Right. It's going to keep them crisp, but it's also going to help with the food safety and with the color. And so whenever you're doing that, um, you know, I think there's kind of this process where we do quick pickles where we know they're just going to hop in the refrigerator um, and we're not actually going to can them. But then we have the canning process And I know one of the things that people worry about is the texture and how much the heating and the canning process is going to impact our vegetables, too. Sure, yeah. So anytime you continuously heat a product, you are going to change the texture a little bit. There are some tricks that we use in food manufacturing that are available to the home cook. Uh, One of them is calcium chloride. And you can buy this in the canning section. It comes in a little green jar. And what calcium chloride does is it helps your vegetables stay crisp during the pickling process so you get a better texture. And you don't need a lot of it. It's generally used around 0.2%. The calcium chloride you buy in the 
grocery store or at Walmart or online Amazon, a lot of times it's already been um, dosed down. So they can tell you to use, say, a, a teaspoon, tablespoon or teaspoon. a teaspoon. Right. So they know what that estimation is going to be, trying to help make sure you're not going to get too much calcium. Um, now, on the side, too much calcium is not going to be a bad thing. Calcium chloride does taste salty, so it'll give you kind of that salt flavor profile if you go a little heavy, but too much and you're actually going to get vegetables that don't have the right texture. So it can, too much can be a bad thing. Now, I know sometimes there's, um, you know, here in New Orleans we have hard water, and when it comes to canning, I, you know, I like to sterilize my jars with distilled water. Um, because, or I'll have water and vinegar because you get those like hard water stains on your jars. How, you know, is that something that is of concern? Is it just aesthetic? Is it? It's strictly aesthetic. Um, here in New Orleans, we do have hard water. The easiest thing is once you pull the canned jar out of the water bath, just wiping it, like you said, with a little bit of vinegar and water will help remove those. The key is making sure that the internal product during canning comes up to at least 165. And so you once you put your vegetables in, you've poured your hot vinegar in, you put the lid on, the mason jar style lid on, put the ring on loose but not completely tight, and then put it into boiling water. And generally it's going to take about 5 to 10 minutes in the boiling water to come up to temperature. Then once there, you can really just pull them out, let them cool. And you know you've done it correctly when the mason jar creates a suction and the button goes down. That's Okay, so my favorite noise is it, it makes me think of Christmas because we, we can pepper jelly as gifts. And when I have them all on the counter and you hear pop, 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 because all those little, ma- they, they just start like suctioning. And it's very melodic and musical. And it, it makes me happy because I'm like, that is the sound of happy Christmas. <laughs> and proper science and success. <laughs> Which is very important. So if people are getting out there and they're like, okay, I am excited about canning things. Is there, a, um, you know, a, a magic formula? Like if I'm going to do jams or jellies, this is my formula. If I'm going to do pickles, this is my formula, or is every batch completely different because the flavors change the formula? There's generally a magic formula for jams and jellies, which is roughly 50 to 55% sugar by weight. Now, I don't think that every home cook is going to have scales. So if you look at a recipe online and it's got good reviews, the likelihood is it's following that magic number. When it comes to pickling, you want to shoot for a pH of around 3 to 3.5. But again, that's assuming that every home cook has a pH meter just sitting on their counter. Can you use the little strips? The strips are good indicators, but they're not really that great for the scientific side. Awesome. Now, whenever, you know, I feel like here in America, we waste too much food. There's always food waste out there. And so at the end of the week, I go through my my refrigerator and I look and I see what I have and, you know, what produce is left, what can I pickle, what can I turn into a jam or jelly. And some creative and fun things have happened. I've discovered that I love pickled grapes because they're so fun to watch the confusion on people's face when they think it's an olive <laughs> and it's really just a purple grape and then they bite into it and they're confused and it entertains me and I like it but you start to realize there are all these you know neat things that you can do so 
When it comes to eliminating food waste, you know, with what is probably in our refrigerator at the end of the week, what are some of the things that maybe we're not thinking of that we can preserve or pickle and use for another day? Yeah. So when it comes to preserving and pickling, really the best things for the home user are things like fruits, vegetables. One of the things where we do in the food science lab with our students is we take end of the year, we'll take things that we have left and we get our students to bring things in and we do a South Louisiana kimchi. So we've take, we've had green apples, we've had sweet potatoes, onions, and that's really easy because pretty much anything that's a plant will ferment really well in a kimchi style. And it's, again, one of those, just like if we're talking about making jams, you want to go with roughly a 10% uh, by weight of salt with the uh, weight of the vegetable, chopping them up small, mix them up, put them in cans. Uh, we like to use plastic buckets because it's easy to burp and let the mm -hmm. excess gas out. But um, right now we are currently fermenting a Middle Eastern fruit chutney. Oh, yum. So it's got apricots, figs, and then we threw in some pineapple, some dried kiwi, a little bit of salt and sugar, a little bit of liquid to uh, take all the dried fruits. And it's a great way if you've got an assortment of dried fruits around you can use fresh fruits and dried fruits just to really give that great extra flavor and profile. Now, whenever you're doing your fermenting things or you're making this kimchi, is that something that after it's done, you're going to can that in a water bath? Is that something that is going to live in your refrigerator forever? How do you know what things can live on your counter versus what things have to be canned versus what things have to be in the refrigerator. Sure. So if you hot can it, and this is put it into the boiling water, then generally once you get that vacuum seal, you can leave it on the counter until opened. If you don't hot can it and you just ferment it or you just put it into a jar like a quick pickle, then generally that needs to be refrigerated. And so... Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that um, as we're sitting here talking about canning and pickling and preserving, this is this is not new modern science. This is food science that has been going on for generations because before we had refrigeration. Well over 2,000 years, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're curing things in salt. We're, so talk about like what else we need to embrace and go back to. Yeah, I think um, – so you were kind of asking me earlier, like, what are some of the fun things that my students are doing? And I have one student who is really interested in fermentation, and she is very intrigued with a lot of the Japanese and Asian cuisine. And so there, there's a huge issue, um, or there's a huge soy consumption. We're here in the United States, we have a large uh, soy allergen issue. So she's actually working on a project. She's also very interested in sustainability and edible insects. So she's actually growing mealworms in the lab, and she's going to make a mealworm miso, which replaces the soybeans with roasted mealworms. But has a high protein content. But high protein and is also fermented. Okay, so we should be eating more bugs? I'm all in favor <laughs> of eating bugs. Um, when in doubt, um, they're high in protein. As long as they are raised uh, from a culinary standard, don't go pick up the grasshopper or cockroach that's in your house or yard. No, I, I think there are probably people out there going, ew, but um, 
there are cultures all over the world that have been eating bugs for a really long time. And, uh, you know, people may say the same thing about our crawfish or things that we eat, you know. Yeah, I mean, growing up, uh, traveling, like we would talk about crawfish, and there were farmers that sprayed for them. Uh, we just got finished doing a presentation at the food science conference, and we referred to shrimp as uh, or grasshoppers as land shrimp. So, I mean, really, we eat bugs regularly. We just don't identify them that way. So, um, in reality, insects are just more evolved crustaceans. So, they're really side by side, very similar in terms of. Uh, genus, species, anthropomorphism. So it's all about how we can just as a society embrace them. Now, so would you uh, suggest that we we start raising some of these things and dropping them in a crawfish boil pot and seeing how the flavor goes? I think right now they're a little small. If we uh, (laughs) definitely were doing some of those uh, large locusts, that might work. But uh, putting them in your sauces as a thickening agent, uh, cricket flour works really well uh, in baked applications, especially in brownies, then I say, why not? Um, it's one of those, the bugs are there, they're extremely healthy, and a lot of them have really unique taste profiles. Well, so next year I'll bring you back for the Halloween show, and um, if you promise to dress in costume and live stream with me, we'll do a, a whole show on bugs. So that way just the people who are interested in eating bugs can listen to that show, and, and we'll do that. Sounds great. Well, you know, I just recently got back from Alaska, and while I was there, and I think you and I had a lot of email back and forth in this discussion because so many people were canning salmon and every person I met, just like here in South Louisiana, they give you a jar of pepper jelly. People would give me these little jars of canned salmon that they put up for the season. And I started going, well, should we be canning our trout? Should we be canning our snapper, our redfish? What? Is this just because it's an oily fish or is this something that maybe we need to get back to our roots and start canning fish too? Yeah, so in general, oily fish or uh, high uh, muscular proteins work really well. Salmon and tuna are generally easy to go to because they're both um, fatty, but they also have a strong muscular structure compared to something like a trout or a whitefish. Generally, if you were going to do that, you would then take the trout or whitefish and kind of use it as an ingredient in a spread. You wouldn't eat it as the protein itself. But it's really nothing different than there was shrimp canners here in Louisiana for a long time. Again, we've had the opportunity now to be able to get fresh access to high-quality fresh or frozen shrimp. So the canning industry side has gone away, but there's still a huge market there, and it really gives the home cook or the restaurant cook the opportunity to really experiment with flavor. The big uh, difference here is that when you do meats or dairy, you need to make sure you're pressure canning, and that means making sure the temperature is getting upwards of about 275 to 280 in the can. And you can't do that with just a normal water bath. You have to use a pressure canner. And a pressure canning is not something that can be done in your instant pot. You need that old school pressure canner. Is that You do because you really need to know that dial. You need to have the pressure gauge on it. And that pressure gauge is important because it's going to tell you when it hits a certain pressure, you know you're at the right temperature. And there are some great reference books out there. 
if you go to your public library, you look on the internet for pressure canning, most of the information out there is pretty accurate. Generally, when there's some inaccuracy, it's taken down quickly. So the things that need to be pressure canned? Meats and dairy. Okay. What about tomatoes? Tomatoes don't because they are a low acid or they're high acid, low pH product. So as long as you are, again, encouraging people, if you're going to do canning, get a pH meter. You can get them for roughly $65 offline. But when you're going to do certain canning, if you're going to do fresh green beans and just a little bit of salt water, you would need to pressure can that. If you're going to put some summer squash up, same thing. The difference in canning a fresh vegetable versus a pickled vegetable, the vinegar that you use helps make it safe so you don't have to pressure can. You can just hot can. But if you're not putting that acid in there, then it really does need to be pressure canned. What about things like garlic? If we want to add garlic to our pepper jelly, is there a concern these days with that? So garlic has a tendency to – well, garlic grows in the soil. And so because of that, there's a tendency for garlic to harbor uh, botulism. And we want to prevent that. So it's always making sure that if you're going to use garlic in like a pepper jelly, that you cook it or saute it ahead of time or buy the garlic that comes in a jar pre-chopped because all of that has been pasteurized to help eliminate that uh, botulism toxin risk. So if you're going to – you just saute off that garlic, you throw it in your pepper jelly, boom, you're good to go. Correct. Awesome. I think that is going to change a lot of people's nervousness because, you you know, it, you can fall down a rabbit hole on the Internet. <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit – we have a little bit of time left about salt preserving. And right now, with it being citrus season, uh, I'm playing around with a lot of things. Uh, I love my preserved Meyer lemons, but this year I'm trying to preserve limes because I thought, hey, if I can do a lemon, a lime would probably be delicious as well. How does how can we use this excess citrus, and what can we do, and how does that process work to salt cure it? Sure. So let's start at the beginning. Salt curing is a little misleading because it's actually salt and sugar curing. Mm -hmm. And it's generally a 50-50 ratio. And you're going to go upwards about 15 to 25% by weight, depending on what the product is. If it's something that has a lot of moisture, you're going to generally go a little bit higher. And the whole idea is that the salt-sugar combination is pulling the excess moisture out the food product. The benefit of that is it doesn't actually get rid of all the enzymes. It does denature some of them, but you still have a lot of the proteases that are still there. So preserved lemon, preserved citrus makes great addition to marinades. Mm -hmm. It's a great if you mix it, make a paste for barbecuing, adding it to a barbecue sauce really changes that profile a little bit. So it's really great for a salted or sauce addition, a seasoning profile. We don't use it a lot here in Louisiana. We need to use it so much more. There's so many more op options we can. Um, I love throwing a little bit of preserved lemon into various dishes that call for lemon juice, especially mm -hmm. on seafood recipes, because the nuance that we get is just a little bit different, a little bit elevated. But you could throw it into crawfish boils in place of lemon, cutting back on the salt. But yeah, there's tons of opportunities there that give all of Louisiana produce tons of opportunities. And, you know, when you're doing things like salt and sugar cures and you're fermenting things on your counter, um, are there 
certain things that we need to look for and just watch and see what the container is doing. Yeah, as long as the container is bulging, you're generally pretty good. But you do want to watch out for any mold growth. If you see mold, if something went wrong, so you generally want to throw that away. The best thing is to put as much produce or what you're curing with salt and sugar in the jar and really leave as little headspace as possible. And if possible, get something like a fermentation valve. Uh, there are some great uh, companies out there like Mason Tops, which make the fermentation process really easy. They have weights, they have valves. And so it's the one-way valves let the air out without the risk of exploding. And so it just makes it a lot easier if you're going to do this, invest a couple bucks into it, get a pH meter, get the right containers, rather than just kind of shooting and hoping. Now, I want you, we have a little bit of time left. I want you to tell our listeners about the University of Holy Cross Food Science Program and how people who are interested in studying in the program can learn more, but also people who are just intrigued by this process and want to learn more. Sure. So we are the only food science program in the greater New Orleans metro area. We started five years ago with the idea that after meeting with a bunch of food companies, realizing that th what they were missing was food scientists. And so the university decided, well, we're going to put our resources into a food science program because the science side ties well into what the university was already doing. So within the program, we teach food law and regulations, food processing, food engineering, and then we also cover a lot of the marketing side and processing. We give our students the opportunity to do two product development courses where they learn how to make a product from the start to finish. So really where we kind of highlight and exceed is on our hands-on learning process for our students. And we find that our students, because of that, have become very successful. And I know that there are people out there who want to learn about food science, but there are also people who like to travel and combine the two. Just like I think last week I saw it come across my Facebook. Y'all are doing something super fun in Italy. Yeah, so this is the uh, first year that we're doing it, but we are starting a food science study abroad that is open to the public. This year we're going to – or this coming summer we're doing food science in Italy. It is a two-week long um, intensive study, and I'm going to use the word intensive loosely because that means eating and drinking, <laughs> where we will be in Italy uh, working with the food science faculty from the University of Parma. But we're going to look and uh, go tour prosciutto making, Parmesan cheese making, and then we'll also have a couple days at the Italian Culinary Institute. And again, it's open to anyone 18 or older. The cost is roughly $38.80, and that includes airfare, hotel, and travel, two meals a day while we're in Italy. So it's a really great price. And it sounds like a lot of fun. I, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to sign up and do it with you. I, I think you need a, a chaperone. <laughs> I probably do. <laughs> well, you all have been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. Today in the studio, I had Dr. Daryl Holiday with Holy Cross University of Holy Cross Food Science. And hopefully you feel a little more confident about 
canning and preserving and pickling out there. And uh, maybe you want to go with them over to Italy and learn a little bit more and eat, drink, and be merry in the name of food science. So uh, thank you for being with me today, Dr. Holiday. I really appreciate it. Uh, for our listeners out there, you've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. Until next time, ciao.